Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. Welcome to the Snooker Team Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. And uh, I'd just like to congratulate Gary Wilson on winning next year's Scottish Open. <laughs> because, of course, he won last year. He won this year. Surely no one else needs to enter now. Uh, incredible, really. Um, I don't know why Edinburgh. I mean, it's a beautiful city. Really good venue there. The Meadowbank Centre. I don't know why that. Appeals to Gary, but the fact is, he's now won 13 matches there. Of the 13, he's played over two years. Uh, beat Nopin Senkom in the final, 9-5. And that rounds off the snooker year, last final on the World Snooker Tour. Um, and, yeah, it's uh, it's very unusual to defend a maiden ranking event. I mean, Ray Reardon did it when there was only the World Championship. Um, although, he wouldn't have known that was a ranking event then, because it was used retrospectively. So, strictly speaking, there's only ever been two who've done it. John Parrott... Won the European Open, 89 and 90. They were his first uh, two ranking events. Or he, or he um, defended the European Open. Anyway, it was his first ranking title. And Mark Allen did the same at the World Open, 2012 and 2013. Um, so it's very unusual. Um, but congratulations to Gary. And uh, we've had a, we'll go straight into the emails because Cameron went to the tournament. Now, we always like to hear from people who paid their own money to go along. And he says, uh, I've been loving recent editions of the podcast, talking about the ins and outs of this new snooker season. I'm emailing you on the eve of the first semi-final of the Scottish Open with my thoughts on quarterfinal Friday as a spectator. Okay, so Cameron went on Friday, and this is what he has to say. He said, my first experience of live snooker was this very event last year, and it was very high quality. Safe to say this year has matched it. Two former world champions in the form of Bingham and Higgins, defending champion Gary Wilson, the exceptional cueists of Ford, Show you long and up and sink on. Standard of play was excellent from match one. Big breaks, beautiful queuing, and truly permanent class. A fantastic feast of snooker. Seeing one of the class of 92 uh, in John Higgins do what he does best before my eyes is something to be treasured for a long time. Also, getting to see that trademark smile from Nopon as I congratulated him on his win warmed my heart as I left. The venue was great again. Whilst not at the same level as other venues, granted, it suits snooker well, in my opinion, and I'm glad to see this event could get good support yet again. Shortish email, but overall a very good day out at the snooker. I found it to be well run on World Snooker Tour's part, and I hope the Scottish Open continues to stay in Edinburgh for the foreseeable future, not just as it's 40 minutes away from me. So a thumbs up there from Cameron. Thank you for the email, and it's uh, good to know you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, uh, I think that the Friday, you know, you guarantee drama It's quarterfinals. Um... It's a seven-day tournament. Here's my view on it, OK? The first day is always great because you've got the top 16 basically on, guaranteed. Then it goes quiet for a few days. It's quite hard to know who's playing when, and I'll come back to that shortly. But then Friday, quarterfinals, there's a sort of... It changes. It's one table, two at night. feels more serious. Obviously, Saturday is the semis and final the Sunday. So four of the seven days, um, I think, really stand out. The Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday... The problem there is, obviously, you don't know who's going to win on day one, and you don't know who's playing when uh, on those days. And I do feel Will Snooker need to do a lot more to publicise the order of play. The order of play is usually firmed up late afternoon for the next day. What is the point in having a website and social media channels if you're not going to use them to tell people who's playing when? Not everyone wants to scrabble down the back of the live scoring website 
to find the order of play. You need to spoon food, spoon feed people. You need to tell them, and they didn't. And consequently, on those three days, the tickets were lower than the other days, and then they picked up again. The Monday was great because everyone knew weeks in advance who was playing. The weekend was great. Those three days were not particularly good. The evenings weren't bad. The afternoons were pretty sparse. So Judd Trump played Jang Ander, which was, you know, a, a big match, but people didn't know about it. I know this for a fact because someone actually messaged me who lives in Edinburgh, and she said, I would definitely have gone more had I been able to find out who was playing when. So that needs to be publicised better. Um, these tournaments are well promoted in advance. Ticket sales across the board are up at least 10% on every event, apart from the shootout, which, of course, moved to a different venue in Swansea. But every other event is up at least 10% in terms of ticket sales on last season. That's brilliant, and it points to good work that's been done pre-event in terms of digital marketing and other other ways of selling tickets, and that's great. When the tournaments are on, though, more needs to be done to keep that going, keep the momentum going. Just tell people. I mean, it's, it's as simple as, OK, John Higgins is playing at 1 o'clock tomorrow. We'd love you to come. This is where you can get your tickets, and this is how much they cost. You've got to lead people to it. But I just felt on those three days, it was very hard to find out. And I was working on it. And I struggled to find out who was playing when. And it definitely would have made a difference. People, if they'd have known for sure who they could see in particular slots, I'm sure would have, you know, gone along. As I say, then picked up again. And, um, you know, it was a great weekend. And obviously we had the drama of Saturday. What an extraordinary day that was. The uh, the, the three snookers, Gary Wilson winning on the respot against Show You Long. Nopin Seng, I'm in tears, beating, you know, one of his great heroes, John Higgins. Uh, brilliant, absolutely brilliant drama. And again, you know, we had quite a few shocks during the week. A couple of players, top players weren't there. Quite a few got knocked out. The tendency is always to think, well, it's going to sort of fizzle out. But the, the game is the star. The game is bigger than anybody. And these narratives came through. And the players who did make it through to the latter stages produced a great quality, great stories. And it was another great week. A terrific tournament. Scottish crowds very passionate. Obviously, a lot of them wanted John Higgins to... Uh, to come through, it didn't happen, but uh, I think they were rewarded with a pretty remarkable story. Gary Wilson, again, the Scottish Open champion. Alpha Bonzi has sent his three questions. He says, I write this on Saturday night, just after those dramatic semis in Edinburgh. My three quick questions, not knowing who's won the title yet, are, number one, how many more times can John Higgins reach semis and finals only to run out of gas with the trophy in sight? He must be getting bored going home empty-handed. Uh, well... Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Bored, I'm frustrated. I suspect because John's actually playing good stuff. Um, I thought he did play well. Um, actually, at the start of that um, semi-final, uh, he missed that pink. He wasn't quite on it right. I think now what happens is, and it's become because there's been a series of matches he's lost from in front. He can't put out of his mind so easily mistakes. Everyone's going to make mistakes. I think John. It does affect him and. But it doesn't help them when you're playing someone like Nop and Senkar, who just played brilliantly for five frames. You know, a bit like the Judd Trump comeback in, in the English Open. Higgins didn't do that much wrong, really. I mean, he had chances, OK. He, he was nicely in one frame and he lost his way. But it wasn't a complete capitulation. It was just that people <laughs> people play well these days. The strength in depth has never been higher. And, you know, he, he's winning a lot of matches, John. But obviously, yes, he wins trophies. I get that. Uh, Alpha second question, the Ronnie O'Sullivan withdrawal. If we take the rocket at his word that he gave Will Snooker notice on Sunday that he wasn't going to comp- compete, why the late announcement disappointing Liam Graham and inconveniencing Alfie Davis? <clears throat> well, I don't know the ins and outs of this. Uh, obviously, he did withdraw um, just prior to the event. Now, he said on Eurosport that it wasn't last minute, but actually the night before is last minute when you've got to try and replacement, find a replacement to get to Edinburgh for one o'clock the next day. That is last minute. Um, I don't know exactly how he communicated his withdrawal. Obviously, if he rang them, they would have known instantly. If he emailed them, it's possible that email wasn't picked up for a while. I don't know. Um, but it, it, it wasn't great for the tournament, obviously, to, for, for him to pull out. But I can't, I'm not going to question um, the veracity of his claim to be ill. I have no knowledge of that one way or the other. Obviously, when you pull out of a lot of tournaments, people do ask questions. Um, I suppose what, what you could argue is, if he pulled out the night before, he must have arranged travel for the Monday. So, I mean, had he booked a flight? Is the proof that flight was ever booked, etc., etc.? That's for Will Snooker to look into if they so choose. Um, but, you know, we had a great week either way. You know, we, we're long since the, past the point where we rely on, you know, one or two people to carry the sport. As we saw at the weekend, it was a, a remarkable kind of finish. Um, shame he didn't play. Alfie Davis would have been, had he been able to have more notice... Would have been a possible reserve. That's that's the reference to him there. Uh, but Liam Graham, you know, 
There was no guarantee whoever we would have played, he would have won that match. At the end of the day, he, he managed to get through the next round as well and uh, very nearly got to the last 16. So there's two ways of looking at it. He might have wanted to play Ronnie O'Sullivan, but actually he came out of it with, what, four and a half grand, which you've got to think, had he played Ronnie, he probably would have got, got beat by him. Number three... Uh, how blown away were you as I was by Noppen Senkarm's reaction to his semi-final win? How can he have been this good this long without threatening a ranking final? Well, of course, it was his fifth semi-final, so he, he kind of had threatened. I mean, you can't not like him. I remember right at the start of the season at the Championship League in Leicester, I was in the hotel there, went down for breakfast, and he came down a few minutes later. And I'm not kidding, there were four or five members of staff on duty. They all, all of them, gravitated towards him. They were like fighting over who was going to get him his table, who was going to get him his cup of tea. There's something about him that's likeable, and, and it's a sort of humility that all the Thai players have always had. It's just a very nice way about them. They're humble people, and he's a lovely guy, and, and that was a natural reaction. And John Tiggins, I thought, was great with him, as was the referee, actually, Eva Martil, just recognising the enormity of his personal achievement. Um, yeah, I mean, lovely guy, and let's hope he wins a tournament. It'd be brilliant. Uh, Alpha says, thanks as always for the podcast. I'm looking forward to the Christmas special with the Talking Snooker Boys, for which I have one topic suggestion, the 1990 Mercantile Classic. Well, nothing says Christmas like that, does it? I suspect they won't be on the agenda. We're recording it later, so uh, all will be revealed. It'll be out later uh, in the week. Uh, uh, Brian writes, Brian Murray from Dublin here. I hope life is treating you well. I know Google is a great way of getting information, but I value your opinion on all questions. A couple of questions for you, please. I'm watching the Scottish Open at the moment. I've seen a couple of howlers of mispots and miscues, which happens to the best of us. Uh, so question one, I was just thinking about when the, the suspended players come back onto the scene, can they ever really be trusted again? Namely Mark King or Stephen Lee, even if they genuinely miss a relatively easy pot or genuinely miscue, will they ever be relieved? Do you think any of the current players will object to them coming back? Uh, well, of course, we don't know the, um, the upshot of Mark King's case yet. That's still grinding on. Stephen Lee technically can come back next year, but he would have to pay the, the fines and legal costs that that he still hasn't paid from the original hearing, and, and that's a lot of money, and I'd be amazed if he was minded to pay them. So I don't think he'll be coming back. Of course, in due course, you know, years to come, the, the Chinese players could, could come back. Of course, some players have come back. Chow Yupeng has come back. Um, I, I mean, I think players, you know, they, they you're not looked at the same again. I think that's, that's just human nature. Um, I personally believe that people do deserve second chances, um, but it's inevitable if you've done something like that, people will look at you a certain way. What I would say is anything's missable. You know, people, we live in a sort of gambling culture where, you know, people are very quick to point the finger if someone just makes an elementary error, but it's a hard game and people miss, and that's a fact. Um, and that's, that's almost, almost what it is. It's just people making mistakes. Uh, question two I've recently been watching a programme called The Overlap on Tour with Gary Neville Roy Keane and Jamie Carragher I don't know if you're aware of it two presenters talk to them about their past careers in various venues it's good fun do you think a similar type of programme could be made with snooker players instead of footballers maybe yourself and Ken Doherty presenting with alternating snooker players in the hot seats talking about their careers I, I do know of it I mean I, I, my phone's always on for any opportunities but um, it's kind of what Stephen Hendry does I think on Q-tips really he he um you know, obviously he interviews players, he plays a frame with them, so it's a sort of similar thing. It's not quite the same. I know, I know it's a, a different format. Um, but, you know, I think, uh, th- yeah, I mean, anything that kind of spreads the word is good. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, we always have to sort of look at what other sports are doing and nick the best bits, really, nick the best ideas, I suppose. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, from Brian, he says, I was watching when Sean Murphy got the maximum at the shootout. I really enjoyed it, but I have to say, it wasn't a patch on the excitement of the Blue Bull shootout between Karen Wilson and C.J. Wee. That was really entertaining. Thanks again. Happy Christmas to yourself and your family. Well, thank you, Brian. Same to you. Yeah, I mean, that shootout was pretty extraordinary. And I'm glad we got one. Uh, you know, it, 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 kind of that format, obviously, it's always possible. But, uh, you know, looking like we were going to get one. But we did. Uh, and that was good. Andrew Newman... He says, I wanted to drop you a quick note as I was sitting on my train ride to work listening to the podcast and just felt very appreciative of it. I wanted to make sure I told you it's a great podcast, one for the true snooker fans, but with humour too. I've been listening pretty much since it started and I think that now it's just you presenting. It's still absolutely great. I really like how you do reader letters and emails. It makes it feel like a community. It's kept me in touch with the snooker chat at a time when I've moved city and I'm away from my usual snooker loving pals and not getting to play as much as I used to. Massive thank you and keep it all up. 
Well, well, that's very kind of you, Andrew. It really is. And uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's, I'm glad you use the word community because it is a community of, of like-minded people. Um, and, you know, not everyone's going to agree on every point everyone makes, but we all, we're all in it for the same reason, which is that we love snooker. So thank you very much for that. Uh, John Evans, he says, long-time listener, third-time emailer. I've just seen the YouTube highlights of Zhang Ander and Judd Trump at the Scottish Open round two, which Zhang won 4 two. I've been so impressed with Zhang of late that I had to write into you just to acknowledge that fact. He really has been, uh, he really has been playing some brilliant stuff with breaks of the highest quality and the bottle to go with it. Do you know what Zhang may be doing differently in his preparation? I didn't see a great deal of the international championship, so apologies if it was covered during the TV coverage. Compared to what I've seen of him over the years, there's been such a stark improvement. It's wonderful to see as a snooker fan, actually. I can't help but be reminded in some ways of the later career ascendants of Stuart Bingham, perhaps more recently David Gilbert. One of the great joys of snooker, and all cue supports, I suppose, you can come good late on. I really hope he carries on this vein. Easier said than done, but once you've done it once, dot, 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 says, keep up the great work and commentary in your written work. You must be putting some shifts in with all the snooker coverage of late. It's brilliant. John in Worcester. Well, thanks, John. Yes, I mean, it's been busy, but that's how we like it. I think it's worth saying, Zhang, I mean, it, it's his birthday on Christmas Day. He's only going to be 32, so he's not maybe as old as people think. He just seems like he's been around a long time. In terms of what he's doing differently, I, I, I wouldn't know that, but I think it's like a sort of crossroads that players have sometimes. When they get a bit of success, they reach a final. Which way is it going to go? Is that the ceiling they've hit? And for some of them it is. You don't kind of see them in that position again. Or is it actually a stepping stone to greater things? And clearly in Zhang's case, reaching that English Open final, you know, 7-3 up, he could have been quite down losing to Judd Trump 9-7. He actually took the positives. He thought, no, you know, I proved I can reach a final. I very nearly won it. I didn't do much wrong to lose it. And there we were, a few, literally a few weeks later, he won a massive ranking event, the International Championship in China, 175,000 in Tianjin he won. And that's all to the good. And uh, he's sort of taken that initial breakthrough and made a positive out of it rather than what could have been a negative. He could have sort of dwelt on the fact that he hadn't won it. And and as I say, maybe that would have been it for him. But clearly now, I mean, I mean Kelly Barker on, on Twitter uh, last week as, when he was playing Trump made the point that he's got to be a danger man at the Crucible now. You know, just that calm way he plays, that sort of relentless, you know, uh, way he has of just being in the zone. Absolutely. I mean, it'd be interesting. He's never won a match there, but... Certain Luca Purcell had never won a match there, Eddie, before last season. Uh, Ian Jolliffe. I felt compelled to write after watching Martin O'Donnell's fine victory over Luca Purcell. Well, fine for Martin, not sure about the rest of us. I was aware that Martin is one of the ha- highest average shot times, but this might be the first match I've seen him play on TV. It's the slowness at every stage that I find hard to watch. He takes an age to decide on the most obvious shot. He walks around the table and gets down to the shot like a sloth on crutches. <laughs> Quite a phrase, that, uh, Ian. He says, uh, why feather the queue three times when you can do it ten times? I appreciate Martin has broken no rule, but I wonder if you agree that his style could be perceived as detrimental to the sport. Also, do you think there's an element of gamesmanship in that he knows his reputation and then takes it further to frustrate other players? I love your podcast. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Ian. I have to say, Ian, I don't agree with that last point. I don't think it's gamesmanship. I actually don't think Martin, genuinely don't think he realises, and there's players like him realise that they are taking that time. They're so concentrated on what they're doing. They're not running the clock down deliberately. They're just, sometimes anxiety takes over. It means a lot to these guys. Let's, let's remember that. And they're not all as clear-headed to just play the shot. They all see the shot basically in the same time, um, all these players. But so the, some of them need to build themselves up to playing it. Martin O'Donnell is a lovely guy, you know, really good player. I interviewed him at the Championship League when he won his initial group, and he and he said then that he was not going to play the way that he had the sort of reputation he'd got. He was not going to play like that anymore, and he hasn't played like that the whole season. He's not been sort of as slow as you're saying all season, but in some big matches at times, yes, he has slowed down. I'm sure he would rather play quicker, um, but as I say, it means a lot, and and some players just have that natural sort of proclivity to take that extra time building themselves up into the shot. What you see at the shootout is a lot of these guys then, when they have to play quick, do. And they can manage perfectly well. I mean, Anthony Hamilton is another player who, you know, has slowed down over the years. But he is really good in the shootout. He just gets on with it. Um, but I don't... I, I appreciate, you know, the aesthetics you may not enjoy, but I, I absolutely don't think actually he's aware of it. And I certainly don't think it's gamesmanship, no. 
John Doran writes, I agree with your statement on the most recent episode that snooker is booming. I've been an ardent follower of the sport for 45 years, and in a sense, I feel it's never been in better shape. The standard of play by so many players is incredible. The number of tournaments available to, to watch on a variety of TV channels and other platforms is amazing. Everything is of a very high standard now, not just the play, but also the commentary and the analysis. People used to say that there were no longer any characters in the game. I notice I haven't heard that said for a while now. It certainly isn't true. Like many people, I'd love to see Jack Lazowski get a big tournament win. His style of playing snooker is very attractive. He also seems to be a good guy, very likeable. However, I'm not convinced things are going in the right direction for him, and I wonder if the Peter Ebden connection is working to his advantage. For a while, it seemed like it might be. But my impression now is that he was doing better before Ebden became his coach. This is a strong impression and not based on an analysis of results. I'd be interested to know if you share this view. Perhaps this is unfair, but I also wonder about how Ebden sits in the audience when Lazowski is playing. At least, he does this at the BBC events. I don't recall seeing him in the audience at the smaller events, but he may have been. At the BBC events, the camera tends to go to Ebden in the audience quite often. The attention should be on Jack Lazowski, not on his coach. The coach should be in the background. I must admit, I find it rather irritating. Ebden seems to produce a rather large notebook at the end of frames and scribble some notes on it. I'm going to, uh, John, if you don't mind, I'm going to miss out the next paragraph because it's a little contentious. Um, but anyway, you conclude, speaking of books about snooker, I found Brendan Cooper's Deep Pockets, Snooker and the Meaning of Life, to be most enjoyable. Have you read it? If so, what did you think of it? Well, indeed, I have read it. And Brendan, we actually did a podcast in the summer with Brendan and uh, two other authors, Luke Williams and uh, John Skilbeck, about their books. Deep Pockets is a wonderful book. And if you're looking for a Christmas present for a snooker fan, uh, look no further. It's brilliant. Um, so, yes, I have read it. On the point about Ebden and Lazowski, I mean, I always thought it was a strange sort of um, coming together myself. And, and sometimes that can work. Two extremely different players, different styles, um, we can only judge it on results, and the fact is Jack got to six finals before he got involved with Ebden, and since getting involved with him, he hasn't been in any, and that's just a fact. Now, that doesn't mean it's not working, or he hasn't learnt anything, but I think when push comes to shove in the high-pressure moments, you know, the sort of whatever Ebden's told him, I'm not sure he's foremost in his mind. You go back to Germany, uh, the German Masters semi against Tom Ford, I mean, he definitely should have won that. The UK semi last season with Mark Allen, he probably should have won that. Um, yeah, and there have been other matches as well where, you know, he's been sort of looking good and then fallen flat. But it doesn't mean in the long term, you know, it won't have an effect. Only only he will really know because only he really knows, um, you know, what, what Ebden has said to him and whether it's working or not. He's kept him on board, so suggests that he's taken something from it. As for sitting in the audience, writing in notebooks, I kind of know what you mean. Um... It is kind of inviting attention a little bit, I think. But um, I guess he would argue, well, I need to be in the arena to sort of watch him properly um, rather than just relying on a TV screen. So, uh, yeah, it's kind of up to them, isn't it, really, whether, you know, to the extent to which it's working or isn't working. Um, I suppose there will come a point if, if the results are not coming as they were hoping that they might possibly end. But equally, if Jack won a tournament, then maybe it's vindicated. And listen, I think everyone listening to this wants Jack to win a tournament. You know, he, he is a terrific player, terrific talent, and that's that's all really that's the only piece of the jigsaw that's missing. Uh, Keith writes, you mentioned colour blindness in today's final. This was the Scottish Open uh, when the brown went into the reds during the BBC coverage of the UK Championship. Mark Allen mentioned that he has a problem also. As a colour blind viewer, I don't understand why we can't go back to using the light brown, almost tan coloured ball, as used in the eighties. It's very noticeable when you watch old footage. I think it was used because of the TV equipment available at the time, but it solved the problem for me at least. <clears throat> well, it seems like a niche point, but not to Keith, obviously, because he he's saying that uh, he's colourblind. And I, I must admit, I mean, it seems, you know, there'd be, there'd be riots in the streets if, if we tried to replace the brown with another colour. But it, it, once it goes near the reds, it is quite hard to pick it out, actually. And there's players, Mark Allen's one, Peter Ebden actually is another, Mark Williams, I think Marco Fu who struggle when that happens. So um, maybe a lighter brown is the answer, but just imagine the uh, the uproar. And speaking of which, of course, we must congratulate uh, three players have joined the WPBC board, Sean Murphy, Matt Selt, and Mark Davis. Three sort of different characters, really. Murphy, obviously, is a top player. Been quite outspoken about various things, but always very... Uh, represents the sport very well, uh, you know, in an ambassadorial sense. He's always suited and booted and talks well. 
Uh, Mark Davis has got all the experience in the world. I think he's a good choice. You know, he's been a, been a pro since 91. He's seen every system and he's well respected by the other players. And Matt Sell, I think he's a, he's a rather sort of, um, unlikely politician, let's put it that way. But what Sean said was that he was instrumental. Sean Murphy, I completely agree with him. He said the problem over the years has been apathy, player apathy. They like to complain in players' rooms and other, on social media, but when they get a chance to do something, they don't do it. And that changed here. And Matt Selt apparently was sort of canvassing people and saying, look, you've got to come and vote. You've got to come and turn out, make your voice heard, and make the powers that be understand that we are interested and we do want things to change. So congratulations uh, to those three. What they will find, though, is, and they'll find it quite quickly, I suspect, is that a lot of players seem to think that the game kind of revolves around them, and what they will discover is it doesn't. The professional game and the professional circuit revolves around the commercial partners. What they want will govern what can happen because they put the money in. So a lot of sort of player ideas will come up against what broadcasters want, what sponsors want, and, of course, what the ticket-buying public will will put up with or will go along with. So that will be the trade-off, but good luck to them. They put their heads above the parapet and they're uh, you know going to determine to try and represent the players and... I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that all pans out. Uh, Dermot O'Sullivan says, I was listening to your ever-enjoyable last podcast and I have a few musings. After the Macau Five, I thought the rule was a player could not participate in an event while another WST event was going on. After your, after your clarification, is it only the case if it's televised? That seems rather nuanced rather than a clear rule. Uh, I, Dermot, I don't think there is a clear rule. I think that it's... They, World Snooker Tour would look at each sort of... Uh, exhibition on its merits, really, and I think they felt that Macau one um, was too much like a tournament uh, that that would rival a ranking tournament. And I think also, I mean, I don't think it's any secret they've been, you know, trying to get an event on Macau themselves. So it's not really in their interest to build up another event. So I think that I think they would look at it, look at each proposal on its merits. The one in Finland during the shootout, obviously was not thought to be an impediment to the shootout. So that, that went ahead with Mark Selby and Neil Robertson and looked like a, a great success. Uh, Dermot's second point. There's so much talk about the aforementioned five, and yet Ronnie's continued withdrawals, citing medical reasons, only for Phoenix-like recoveries for Chinese or Triple Crown events, seem to be blindly accepted. Well, as I said earlier, you know, you can't really disprove a medical note, and I'm, I'm not going to get into, you know, talking about... Um, whether Ronnie was, you know, as, as ill as he said or not. Only he would know that, and indeed only his doctor would know. Um, I can understand why people are cynical, but, you know, there's the, the sort of parable of the boy who cried wolf, isn't it? You know, the, he, he, he might actually have been ill. I mean, there's no, there's no um, evidence he wasn't. I think he was generally just tired after the UK. He put a lot into that and maybe just wasn't 100% to play, I guess. Um and Dermot's final point, rather than World Snooker Tour making grandiose statements about future international events, it would be interesting to hear what they would do differently. There have been countless international events already, with the German Masters the only constant. Have a great Christmas, and thanks for the ongoing top commentary and number one snooker podcast. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what you're saying there is, if it's going to be new international events, they have to actually stick rather than be around for a couple of years and, and then disappear. It comes down to the usual stuff, which is commercial stuff really you know they have to pay for themselves they have to be um sustainable i mean the turkish masters was announced as a five-year deal it lasted one year um you're dealing with in a lot of these territories kind of unknown things and uh it's not it's not as easy as people think even though the interest is there you know the initial outlay to put on a big tournament is huge and you don't want to you know they're, they're managing a business in fairness to them they're managing a business and they have to manage that um, in a sort of uh, fiscally uh, responsible way, I suppose. Uh, Graham Sheridan. Standard opening of long-time listener, first-time emailer. Have a couple of questions, if I may. Number one, Ding has previously made the final of the World Championship, now the UK Championship, having come through the qualifiers. Do you know if that is a unique achievement? Uh, <laughs> I mean, see, pr- a proper podcast, Graham, would have looked this up before reading your question out. I haven't. Uh, I've been busy, to be honest. Uh, to be fair, but uh, I suspect it might be. <laughs> it's not much of an answer, but I suspect it might be. I can't think the UK, the, the World Championship rather. Um, you, I can think of players who've got to the final as qualifiers. Grand Dot would be one. Mark Selby um, will be another. Uh, obviously, Sean Murphy won it. 
Um, but then the UK, uh, qualifiers reaching the UK final, that's a smaller uh, list, I would say. Because um, obviously, for, for many years, the the system, the UK Championship system was different anyway. I mean, for years, it was a, 10 years, it was a flat draw. Um, so there was no qualifying then. Before that, um, for quite a few years, the, the sort of top players came in in the last 64 rounds. So it was very different to the World Championship. Um, but well, if anyone knows the answer to that, I'm pretty sure it prob- you're probably right. And he also, Graham also says, career centuries. Do those made at the Masters and other invitational tournaments such as Shanghai this year count towards player tallies? Yeah, they do, uh, Graham. All uh, professional tournaments count towards player tallies. Uh, Judd Trump's made 53 centuries this season, and um, he needs to make another 51. And we're about halfway through, aren't we? Basically, um, he needs to make another 51. To break Neil Robertson's record of 103. Um, he also, by the way, needs another, well, he needs another 47, obviously, to make his thousands. That seems more likely. I mean, we're only talking f- four different breaks, but 40, you can see him making 47 centuries in the second half of the season. 51 somehow seems a lot more. It's only four more. It's going to go to the crucible, you would suspect. Now, the Championship League will be big for that because that counts. And of course, there's, there are potentially a lot of frames to play. I'm not, I don't know what group. Judd Trump's going to come in there, but that could help him. Um, but uh, either way, I mean, he's going to make more than anyone else. So I think that's pretty that's pretty obvious. Uh, but yeah, that all professional tournaments count, so the Masters and invitation events all count. <coughs> Craig Dooley uh, writes, "Your long-time listener, first-time emailer." So I, I can I can officially confirm, having sampled most of the snooker podcasts available, yours is my favourite for what it's worth. Well, thank you. Thanks for keeping me entertained for many an hour as I work as a gardener. Uh, I've just watched Higgins lose a frame from three snookers ahead, and this came to me. Is it ever possible to commit two fouls in one shot? For example, hitting the wrong ball and then potting the white. I mean, clearly it's possible. Frankly, I've probably done it. But what happens scoring-wise? Your superior knowledge is appreciated. Uh, well, thank you, Craig. Um, I wouldn't say my knowledge is superior, by the way, on this. But, no, I mean, <coughs> well, the, it's yes and no. It's, it's According to the rule book, it's no. I mean, if, if there's two fouls in one shot... You just get um, the one set of penalty points. However, I have seen, and this is the only time I've ever seen this, there was an incident where a player, it was Ronnie O'Sullivan, was actually fouled eight points. Okay, now this is a plump up a cushion here. This is this is big. This is this is revelatory. It was Colin Brinder was the referee, and Ronnie he, he played out of a snooker, and uh, I think he hit the pink, and some reds moved, and. Colin was, you know, and this, there was no freeze frame. So Colin was putting the, the balls back and Ronnie got kind of, you know, um, impatient with him and he picked up two reds and basically, I mean, he would say he'd be trying to be helpful, but he put them back where he thought they should have been, which of course he shouldn't do. And Colin actually said to him, I'm going to foul you four points for each red you picked up. So maybe unique. The only time anyone's been fouled eight points in for one incident, um, so yeah, that, I've seen that happen, but uh, that's that was him, the referee there, sort of, uh, t- well, not making the rules up, but but de- but deciding on the penalty himself. Um, let's say you 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 try and pot a red, and somehow you knock the black and the pink in. The foul would be seven points for the black because it's the bigger ball. You wouldn't it wouldn't be thirteen points um, because you've also knocked the pink in. Um, but I have seen eight points for one for one incident. So. Uh, you know, it's all that, it's all there, isn't it? It's all there. <laughs> of course, we're coming to the end of the the year, and people are reflecting on what they've seen. And Ollie writes, uh, "I'm just writing to say what a fantastic year in snooker it's been. Started on a real personal high by seeing that fantastic Mark Williams Ronnie O'Sullivan match at Ali Pali, which surely would be my greatest snooker memory ever. If not for a week later, seeing Nop and Senkom waddling through the streets of Cheltenham, arms fit to burst with galleons of milk." Stroke orange juice, stroke water. There's a bone of contention between me and my partner as to which it actually was. So I've included all three for an air of mystery. So <laughs> it's quite a, quite a picture you paint there. Poor old Nopon, uh, carrying all this, all these, uh, supplies. Anyway, it says that, however, there was in 2023 an unfortunate moment for the sport, a scandal, no disaster, which I feel has been glossed over and frankly swept under the rug by people wishing to pretend that all is well in the sport that we adore. I'm referring, of course, to the omission of Alan McManus from the listener-submitted list of best player pundits. Now, this was last week. Someone, I think Matt Tarrant, sent in his top ten uh, players who are also commentators. Um, uh, Ollie says he's head and shoulders above the rest and stands unparalleled in, in his analysis of the game. 
Were there a Mount Rushmore of players turned pundits, he would be all four faces. The Statue of Liberty should be torn down and replaced with angles touting his cue on high. Let King Charles's face be removed from stamps and replaced with the 94 Masters champ. I feel I've made my point. Uh, of course, Alan last night wore a kilt <laughs> for the final. and that's, that's He is Scottish, so, you know, that's his prerogative. She says, obviously I'm being excessive, but I truly do think he's the finest working at present and thoroughly enjoy all of the other ten listed on the aforementioned list. And he ties in nicely to your request for favourite moments of comedy. Co- com- commentary. Sorry. Uh, cast your mind back to the Morningside Arena, January 2023. The shootout is in full swing and having made good on another, another victory, Deshawat Poomjang is relaxing in the crowd with his newfound friends and a flagon of ale. As the camera pans to the scene, Alan noting that Deshawat has another match to play the following day utters in his inimitable accent steady on now pumas you've got another day tomorrow priceless stuff off quoted by myself and my partner along with jv's hello there upon seeing the crucible pigeon fly up to the comms box what a beautifully bizarre brilliant sport thanks for the company this year i don't know if you put much stock in things but spotify informed me you were my top podcast of the year and that i listened to 2281 minutes Merry Christmas, enjoy the break. Thank you, Ollie, and, and my commiserations that so much of your time has been taken up with this nonsense. But, uh, yes, I mean, listen, I think, <laughs> I don't think that many people would disagree. Alan is a brilliant broadcaster, very versatile, uh, in front of camera, behind the microphone. He can do it all. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's just, he's just brilliant. And that's, that's just a fact. So thank you for that. Uh, now then, uh, we'll go next to Adam Fisher. I've got three questions for you and your listeners' pleasure. Number one, is a tour card a real physical thing? Do the players get sent a credit-sized WST card with their mugshots on, confirming that there's a professional player? Or do do WST send them a handwritten greeting card asking them to join the professional tour? Or is it something more boring? I suspect it's more boring, Adam. Um, They just get a letter, I I suspect, and obviously a contract that they have to sign, and that's it, really. It'd be nice to think you did get a card, but uh, I don't think that's it's quite that literal. Number two, how well is the shootout received in China? Does it pull in good viewing figures? I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, all the viewing figures in China tend to be good. Um, I, I don't know that it's uh, any better than any of the other snookers, I, I, I suspect. I think, you know, the shootout format, they have in China these very formal um, uh, uh, days, the Sunday before it starts, or the day before it starts, these very formal speeches and... You know, dignitaries get their bit, and that's all very important out there. And of course, they're putting the money in, so the players are not always that engaged with it, but they have to kind of go along with it. But actually, some sort of shootout evening, a couple of hours of a shootout the night before a tournament, maybe that would be a good way to launch it because it's fun, it, people are relaxed, and it's a bit of entertainment. Um, anyway, just just a thought. And number three <coughs> from Adam to jazz up the home nations, which I believe to be the dullest events on tour. I think that each match should be played with an even number of frames, say best of eight in the first round. Upon a 4-4 tie, there'll be a blue ball shootout. There's not, there's more bang for your buck here, a final frame decider, which may possibly be followed by a blue ball shootout. Not much of a change, but something a little different. Uh, I don't agree that they're dull, actually. I think, they, I think that the, the, the sort of constant turnover of matches makes them really interesting. Um, we saw some great matches last week, some late finishes as well, I've got to say, but, uh, you know, you've got a lot of matches to get through. Um, so I, I don't really, uh, no, I don't, in a ranking event, a blue ball shootout to decide it. I mean, the, the shootout is a different tournament, but in a, in a sort of standard event, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it, it takes me back to the 1991 World Masters, as frankly, most things do. And this was, it was billed as the Wimbledon of snooker. This is one of Barry Hearn's terrific innovations. The idea of it was fantastic. And it, and it was like Wimbledon. You had men's singles, women's singles, men's doubles, women's doubles, mixed doubles, a juniors event, which was won by, John Higgins, he beat Mark Williams in the final, and so on. But it, it, Barry took it to the, the extremes of being like Wimbledon because he actually had a tie-break. Um, so the matches were first to, I think, first to six or seven. But basically, if it, if it was tied, you had to win by two frames. But if it was tied, they were ba- the, the tie-break was the last red and the colours. So the last red, I think, was put on the cushion, on the side cushion. Um, and the colours, and it was a bit of a kind of um, anticlimax because the thing is, it doesn't matter what sort of match it's been; it can be the most rotten match in the world. Deciding frame is going to be exciting, and if you start the deciding frame on the last red, it's not as exciting. You're being sort of cheated a little bit; you're being shortchanged. Um, so anyway, thank you for the uh, the communication, though. 
Uh, now, Stephen and Michelle, now I met these two in the in a pub <laughs> in Sheffield, and they say, no preamble this time, you and the listeners will be pleased to know. Michelle and I were wondering, so Stephen's written this, if you'll have snooker-free Christmas and Boxing Days, will we be watching reruns of classic matches and perhaps reviewing 2023, whilst many will be watching cheesy Christmas movies instead? Well, I'll answer that. I won't be watching snooker, but in fact, there is snooker on. Um, I think on the 29th, there's, uh, on Channel 5, there's this uh, Jason Francis promoted event with the, the sort of legends. So you've got Joe Johnson, Jimmy White, Stephen Hendry, Ken Doherty, Tony Knowles, and I think Dennis Taylor. Um, and that's going to be on Channel 5, which is new for snooker. That's quite mainstream, so good luck to them for that. Um, I suspect I'll be tuning into that. They, uh, Stephen says, speaking of 2023, what would be your highlights? I realise that this is a podcast in itself. It may well be in the works. So perhaps just a teaser, one or two of your memorable moments, be that professionally or personally. Uh, well, I'll, I think I'll be talking about this with Nick and Phil later, but um, obviously Luca winning the World Championship and being there for that was a great thrill. Uh, the World Championship is always the thing you go to first. And that was a fantastic uh, night there where he won that. Brilliant. Uh, more recently, Ronnie winning the UK, I thought was... Uh, also to be there for that was was great. And aside from the torments, uh, I went down to interview Ray Reardon, um, which was a wonderful uh, day out and uh, a couple of hours spent with him was brilliant. Um, but I may get into that more with on the, on the next podcast. Stephen says, one of ours would of course be meeting you and the graduate and we'll unashamedly tell that anecdote to as many friends and family over the festive period as we can. Uh, and he says, finally, I met a scriptwriter at a recent Bell and Sebastian gig, and it reminded to ask how that part of your life is progressing. Are there any projects in the works you can divulge? Well, I've got a play on uh, Drayton Arms in London, March the 3rd and 4th, called Home Time. It's a play that's been on before, um, and it's come round again. Well, not come round again. That makes it <laughs> that makes it sound like a suitcase on, a, on an airport baggage carousel. It's going to be on again. It's a one-woman uh, play about a woman who's son has gone off to school and she receives a, a call to say there's been an incident at the school so it's it's not a happy play i'll be honest but um anyway that's gonna that's the next thing and then after that uh, we'll see thank you for the uh email i hope to see you in the graduate again next year Addie writes after the last podcast about ronnie's fastest 147 ever being beaten the referee len ganley in that break stood behind the top cushion allowing ronnie to play the next shot very quickly but as i understand it now the refs try and stand behind the player now so it takes longer to spot the ball. So my question is, if a, if a player realised the table was good for a 147 and wanted to attempt it quickly, could he ask the ref to stand behind the top cushion so they can spot the balls as fast as he can? I think the answer to that, Addy, is they could ask. Whether the referees would do it, I don't know. I mean, they have their obviously their way of doing things. Um, but you're quite right about Len. He did he did do that, and it did definitely helped um, the sort of positioning of referees maybe slightly different now. Player can ask. They can only ask, and it's up to the referee then to, you know, to either go along with it or or not. I suppose. Brian McGovern's written about the, the score graphics, and we have had a few communications from people. Uh, thanks, Brian, for writing in. He's comparing the graphics from the Scottish Open three years to go to now, and they are smaller. I've got quite a few people writing in and, and contacting on on Twitter. Some say X. Uh, it's called X now. Um, Saying that that you know they're they're partially sighted, they can't always see the the actual graphics as clearly as maybe they want to, or maybe they once could. And it's it's always worth uh, pointing that out. And all I can do is pass it on um, to the people who produce them. But uh, yeah, you, you've sent the sort of screen grab, and they were bigger before. Um, it's in all our interests to make the sport as accessible to everyone as we can. So it's it's a good point to make, I think. Uh, now, Matt Pickles um, has sent... Uh, well, I'll read what he says. It might be easier. He says, I thought, <laughs> so I thought I'd share my thoughts with you from X. <laughs> it's X again. Uh, this morning on the completely unnecessary journey you have to go through on the World Snooker Tour website to view live schools. And I wanted to hear your thoughts. I work in customer experience, and this just strikes me as completely unnecessary and horribly slapdash. Okay, so Matt is, is, uh, is it's a four-part story. He says, number one, so you go to the World Snooker Tour website. He says, you click on scores. Now, you'd expect to see the scores here, wouldn't you? But no. You scroll down, you have to click on Bet Victor Scottish Open. Now, you would definitely expect to see the live scores here, wouldn't you? But no. You scroll all the way down past Monday and Tuesday's matches to the bottom. Uh, hashtag getting there slowly. Uh, you get to the bottom, you realise that here we have the upcoming matches, not the live scores. And you scroll back up about 20% of the way 
to finally see the live scores. Uh, and then he, the hashtag there is easier to climb Everest. So Matt's not impressed with the the work to, being done. This is kind of what I was saying about trying to find out who, the, the playing schedule. It's not as easy as it maybe could be. Now, it, it'll be a couple of weeks' time. Uh, the new website apparently is all being launched and the scoring, everything all being launched. So we'll see then uh, if it's easier and, and more sort of easy to navigate. Um, I believe before the Masters that uh, all will be all will be revealed. So um, thank you for that. And I think, to be fair, the, the scoring, obviously, there's been issues this season, but it seems to have been reliable in terms of it hasn't broken down, as far as I know, for quite a while now. Uh, I'm, I don't monitor it 24-7, but whenever I've gone on it, it's worked, basically, <laughs> which, you know, it, it should do, obviously, but that's, uh, yeah, that's um, what we want. Phil Spivey. Uh, now, they've sent this actually for... Christmas special, so I'll, I'll keep that fill because uh, otherwise it won't be very special, will it? Um, Joe Richards says the provisional World Grand Prix rankings show. Now this this is before this was at one point last week, and then Gary obviously won the tournament. But Joe says the provisional World Grand Prix rankings show Gary Wilson is above C. Wee, even though they're both on the same amount of points. Do you know what the tiebreaker rules are if two players are tied on the same points? Uh, and he says, nice to see Gary Wilson and John Higgins finding form again. To get into the semis, it'd be great to see John Higgins win a title again after a few years of grafting with limited reward to what he's used to. Well, of course, he didn't win that one. But, uh, yeah, Gary Wilson and CJ Wee were tied on points at one stage. Gary was ahead because he'd done better in the most recent event, which was the Scottish Open. So that's how they determine uh, places based on most recent points. Oh, sorry, level points. Gary Wilson had done better in the most recent event. So that's that basically that. And not content with that, Joe's written another email. He says, I think one of the most interesting stats in snooker is that there's only been nine year-end world number one snooker players since 1975. Now, by year-end, he means season-end. So here are the nine players who have ended the se- a season as world number one. Uh, Ray Reardon, Cliff Thorburn, Steve Davis, Stephen Hendry, John Higgins, Mark Williams, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Mark Selby, Judd Trump. I think, this is Joe Richards speaking, I think that's the best stat in snooker. It makes me think being year-end world number one is actually more of an achievement than being world champion. In tennis, the year-end number one is a big deal and they get a trophy. I wonder if they should do that with snooker as it's really, uh, is, it's, I can't, I'm not sure what that, that word is, a startling achievement, I think. It's slightly misspelled, but anyway, uh, no judgment. He says, it shows with Robertson, Murphy, Brussel, Bingham, Dot, Ebden, Doherty, Parrott, John, Joe Johnson, Dennis Turner, John Spencer, all achieved an amazing feat becoming world champions. However, the fact that they've never been world number one show they haven't actually become the world's best at their sport. I'd also say maybe Cliff Thorburn is an exception to the rule, um, as he finished year-end number one only once, and maybe back in 1975 it was an easier feat to achieve with not being many tournaments. Uh, well, he wasn't, uh, yes, because Thorburn wasn't world number one in 1975. Uh, maybe that's a separate point you're making. He says, it's also interesting that the other eight year-end number ones all achieved the feat on more than one occasion. This is genuinely the best stat in snooker and possibly one of the best stats in sport. It's crazy to think in nearly 50 years there's only been eight people who've truly been the best in the world. The big four dominated tennis, arguably the big three. In tennis, it's safe to say there's been a big eight, even if they've been from different eras to some degree. The big eight should definitely get mentioned more. Robertson, Murphy and Ding are great players, but they shouldn't be mentioned in the same bracket as the Big Eight. There's an argument to add Alex Higgins in, as he may have been world number one twice, but I notice it doesn't show year-end number ones pre-1975, and he didn't win it in 82 when he won the world, so I'd leave him out of the Big Eight, in fairness. I'm just on that, Joe. Alex Higgins, actually, he was world number one um, until, and this is sort of classic Higgins, some disciplinary, he lost a couple of ranking points, and that's why Thorburn ended up ahead of him. Um, so Alex Higgins, but for that deduction, based on something he'd done, uh, it may have been the the, the, fl- the pl- flower pot business and possibly the crucible. But anyway, he, he lost a couple of ranking points, so he, he would have been world number one. Of course, in the early days, I mean, it, it's hard to compare um, with now because in the early days, the ranking list was was purely based on the world championship um, because it was the only tournament that counted. So it was based on the previous three world championships. And even in the early 80s, there were only three or four ranking events then. It wasn't really... I don't think the ranking list has sort of credibility as such until sort of mid-80s at the earliest, when there were at least six tournaments 
to count. And obviously on a two-year system, that then, then becomes 12. Um, that's more of a kind of basis to do it. And of course now, the two-year system, it's going to be sort of 30 tournaments that they're going to count. Um, so it is more credible. But again, some tournaments count more than others. If you win the World Championship with half a million points, you've got a great chance to be you know, very close to being world number one, if not guaranteed. Um, anyway, we'll finish Joe's email. He says, uh, even pre-1975, if year-end number ones are recorded, it's possibly there only would have been three more in John Pullman, Fred and Joe Davis, which is even crazier still when you consider in 100 years, 11 to 12 players have dominated a century of the sport. I think this year will be more interesting. That's why I hope Ronnie Judd or Selby do well at the Worlds again, as I don't feel like anyone else quite deserves to take the mantle yet. It'll be interesting to see who with the next after the big eight when Trump retires. Have a great Christmas. Well, you too, and thank you for your uh, analysis there. It's true, there haven't been many uh, players who've ended the season at number one. It usually is tied into the World Championship. I mean, every player on that list, all nine of them, has been World Champion. And I think if you don't win that, then you're very unlikely to be at the top. Richard writes... uh, what happens to players not from the UK who fall off the tour? From what I understand, if you qualify for the tour, you get a visa enabling you to live in the UK. If you lose your tour place, how long are you allowed to live in the UK? I recently listened to Ulian Boyko on the Frame podcast with Shabnam, where he said he now lives in Poland, and this made me wonder if he was forced to leave the UK when he dropped off the tour. Being in the UK is surely an advantage of players who want to get back on the tour as they can train in well-known academies and snooker clubs with current professionals and top amateurs. Indeed, some families have moved to the UK for the primary or sole purpose of maximising the chance of their child becoming a snooker professional. For example, at last week's shootout, we heard that 13-year-old Sean Liu's family had moved from Hong Kong so Sean could train at Dings Academy in Sheffield. At last year's shootout, we were introduced to 14-year-old Vladislav Gradinari from Moldova. He became a sponsored junior earlier this year at levels in Huddersfield. Well, Richard, thanks for the email. I mean, I don't know the specifics of Ulian Boyko's case. Um, You're right to say it's an advantage to come to the UK. It's a big advantage because all the infrastructure's here. You get to practice with better players and you get to improve on that way. Of course, not everyone can afford it, so quite often it may come down to money. I don't think Brexit would have helped because, you know, the sort of ending of freedom of movement, it may be that a lot of the overseas players actually you know, can't can't stay here, or they have to apply for visas, and, and if you, as you say, if they're not on the professional tour, it may be harder to get those. But I think that the bottom line is it's just harder in general for non-British players. There's a massive advantage still for the Brits. If you don't believe me, look what's happening this week. It's the German Masters qualifiers, and they're in the UK. <laughs> it's a tournament in Germany, but people have got to come to Britain. They've got to go to Sheffield to qualify for it. Something about that is not right, clearly, and it's never kind of changed. Um, no one's ever thought of changing it. I mean, why not? The argument for not going to Germany to qualify is, well, it'll cost more for people to go there. But it costs a lot of money for people to come here <laughs> who don't already live here. It's a very, for what is a world sport, it's still a very sort of British, sort of parochial um, mindset, I think. And it'd be interesting to see, you know, in the next few years if that changes or not. I suspect probably not. Now, do look out later this week for the Christmas special um, with Talking Snooker with Nick Metcalf and Phil Hague and myself. Um, it may not be as long this year uh, due to illnesses, but uh, we will do our best. And that will be out later in the week. Uh, you, I'll, now, the, I'll be back in the new year after that, so there'll be no, nothing um, over the sort of Christmas period. be back before the Masters to look ahead to that tournament. Um, you can contact me on snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Uh, it's been a very interesting year. Obviously, we sort of talk about seasons more than years in snooker, but there's been a lot of really good stuff. Um, the odd controversy, the odd argument, that's all part of it. Every sport has that. Bottom line is, I think there's 2023 ends. I genuinely think professional snooker is in a very good place. We've got long-term broadcast contracts. We've got an expanded tour. Now we're back in China. And I think next year, from what I hear, there'll be potentially at least one more event there you know, Barry Hearn has made no secret of the fact there's likely to be an event in the Middle East next year, possibly other places as well, Will Snooker are looking at building up some of the other events the Tour Championship I know is one that they're really trying to expand um, we're not always going to agree everybody with everything that happens and there'll be times when we have to point out our own criticisms and our own views but we should also, at the same time, acknowledge the good work that, that is being done. And after COVID, which 
was a difficult time for snooker, but I have to say not as difficult for snooker as some sports, thanks to the, the good management led by Barry uh, at recognising an opportunity to actually keep the sport going at that time. We are now coming out the other side, and there's a lot of things that need to be ironed out. There's a lot of things that I think need to be more professional, and quite often they're small things, you know, like publicising the order of play. They're not actually going to cost you anything. It's just recognising some of the small things. A lot of the big things are being done well, and I feel positive about the sport going into next year. And I wanted to end with someone else who's positive about the sport because I met in York at the UK Championship, Lars Johansson, who came over from Canada, and he emailed, you may remember beforehand, he wanted Mark Selby to win. That didn't happen, but he enjoyed his trip. And uh, I I told Will Snooker he was coming, and very um, kindly they... Because one day he didn't have a ticket, they sorted him out with a, a VIP ticket actually for the Saturday. So he got to go and have hospitality, dinner and all the rest of it. And um, Let's hear now from Lars about his trip. And he said, Lars has said, you don't have to read it all out, but I'm going to Lars because I think this in many ways sums up what this podcast is about. It's a fans forum. We like to hear from fans, um, their views, their opinions, their questions, and also their experiences to go to tournaments. So this was your experience of coming over from a pretty remote part of Canada. It took him 30 hours to get to York. And let's hear from Lars about his trip to the UK Championship. He says, it's taken me quite a few days, well, a week really, to come down from the high that was York and the UK Championship. I meant to email sooner, but life got in the way. I was hoping to have my thoughts to you before you recorded the recap episode. Uh, the episode I listened to today, thanks for another good one. I really enjoyed reliving the week through the eyes of the podcast and your listeners. And what a tournament it was. Well built and well organised. Seemed like people were hyped and motivated for it. You could tell it was one of the big ones. Will Snooker Tour did good with their social media postings, creating hype and conversations over this and that and the other thing. That said, one thing I don't understand is why Will Snooker don't post any match highlights. While I see the allure, easy, minimal editing required in posting a three to five minute video showing a nice break, a ton, a match, ending clearance, neither type of video helps to build any kind of narrative. The point being, if you haven't been able to watch the matches throughout the day, there's nothing to grasp from those videos as far as storyline and development goes, which, if you ask me, is a big part of the allure of Snooker, not just about the flamboyant, exciting stuff. I think a 10 to 15 minute highlight reel showing great pots, nice breaks, missed opportunities, momentum changing, moments, etc. really could help boost Will Snooker YouTube and Instagram pages. There's so much more to extract from such a video, in my opinion. I think of this every now and then, especially when big tennis tournaments are on, Wimbledon, the US Open, etc., as they have great videos showing highlights. I hope Will Snooker Tour can get on board with that as well. Well, just on that, Lars, um, I think it's a contractual thing, as far as I'm aware. I think because the broadcasters obviously hold the rights to the events, I don't think Will Snooker can actually post videos much longer than three minutes. I'm sure they'd like to, um, but I, I think during the event, they actually are limited to those highlights, which I agree are not, not great, really, because they do... I mean, even they cut off sort of the commentary halfway through a sentence, and it's not a great watch seeing it cut down like that, but I think it's out of their hands. So it's kind of not their fault, really. Well, I say it's not their fault. I mean, <laughs> obviously the contracts are the ones they've agreed, but that they're working within those parameters, I think. Anyway, Lars continues. As for my own experience in York, it was absolutely one of the best, most enjoyable experiences I've ever had, and a total whirlwind of snooker full of excitement. My first time ever watching snooker in person was on the Wednesday. Ding versus Tom Ford. And what an experience. What a first experience. Some outstanding scoring. Yeah, I mean, there was four centuries in the first four frames, weren't there? He says, some outstanding scoring that f during that first session, particularly from Ding. A good sign of what was about to come. Followed by that, and a truly standout moment for me, was the evening session, the Selby-Hawkins battle. While I actually had tickets to the other side, Williams v Clark, I honestly spent the better part of the last hour and a half, maybe more, on my phone, watching Selby. And as luck would have it, Clark v Williams was done sooner, and I could move over to the other side. I was fortunate enough to witness that blue, that's Mark Selby's blue, of course, and the subsequent almost in-off. <coughs> uh, the drama, snooker bliss. Great first double session at the Barbican. If I wasn't hooked already, I certainly was by then. Thursday started with O'Sullivan v Milkins, another gripping decider. I really thought Milkins would get it in the end. He had the chance after chance and he couldn't capitalise. Whilst I wasn't uh, cheering for him per se, it's frustrating watching him and others time and again bottle it against O'Sullivan when they're given more than enough chances. Later the same day, I got to enjoy Hussain... Vafai versus Matt Selt, Hussain was in a good mood and he was looking almost unplayable, scoring heavily at every chance given. At that point, I thought, 
Maybe he can go all the way. He looked really sharp in the qualifiers too and played solidly against Murphy. Again, thanks for forwarding my email to World Snooker Tour. Following that, they contacted me and asked about doing an interview. So we did a short Instagram interview on the Thursday evening. Nothing fancy, but it was fun for a long way traveller like myself. Normally I like to stay out of the way of cameras, but I really had fun answering a few silly questions. And my wife loves seeing me on their Insta. That interview led to the next thing. Friday afternoon, I got to do another interview, this time with Rachel Casey and Eurosport. Same type of interview and another super fun experience. Friday afternoon and another 6-5 decider where I thought O'Sullivan was a goner, this time against Yi Long, but he's just amazing at those clinch moments. He finds the inspiration when he needs to, almost like he's directing it in such a way, just for the challenge. The last two frames, boom, boom, 6-5, the goat lives on. For the evening, I was lucky to have great seats behind my favourite, Mark Selby. Unfortunately, it didn't go as I'd wished. Selby got knocked out. Uh, Selby got knocked out. Uh, that was my least favourite moment of the week, I'll admit. But that's how it goes in sport. There has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. And fair play to Trump, he was clearly the better player. With Selby out, however, I found I could relax more. I've been so emotionally invested in his destiny. I didn't realise until he was out. Good riddance, I guess. <laughs> how quickly they move on. He says, originally I didn't have tickets for the Saturday semis. I was too late buying online. But luckily, as a token of appreciation for my long ways travel, Will Snooker Tour gave me tickets for both Saturday semi-final sessions. Again, thanks to your email. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. In the afternoon, I watched Hussain get knocked out by Ronnie. It was really good seeing Hussain in the earlier rounds. He scored heavily from the qualifier onwards. Then that scoring magic all of a sudden was gone, as it often happens. They play the player, the legend, the aura that is Ronnie O'Sullivan, and they underperform. How many players haven't folded under the pressure of playing Ronnie? After that, I got a VIP ticket for the evening session. Amazing dinner and all. I met some very interesting snooker fans at my dinner table. John from Malta was very memorable, was an interesting fellow who knew Tony Drago personally and shared some interesting stories. I had literal front row seats watching Ding v Trump. What an experience. I felt I could touch the action. Amazing. Some good scoring once again. And great to see the old confident Ding back in action. I hope he continues to play well and stays in the top 16 on a consistent basis. He truly is a class act. It was really nice meeting you and Dominic Dell too. Great seeing the setup in your commentary booth. Thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to make that happen. Yeah, so I should explain, Lars, we, I did meet him and we just invited him up to look at our commentary box and Dominic Kurt as well. Took some time to speak to him. He says, sorry for standing you up on the first try. I got into the, so into the VIP dinner, I totally forgot about the time. My apologies. Not at all. Listen, uh, getting stuck into free meals is what the, what the snooker circuit is based on. Don't worry about that. You, you enjoy it. Uh, I, I, I didn't go myself, but I believe it was nice. Uh, he says, uh, with the semi-finals over, we were set for a classic final between Ding and O'Sullivan. Admittedly, I had a significant financial motivation for Ding to win, so I was wildly cheering for him. He was one of four players that I put money on to win the whole thing. Ding, Selby, Hussain and Lazowski. I know betting on Lazowski to win might as well throw my money in the river, I suppose. But I simply can't stop believing all that natural talent must come together at some point, right? In the end, the right player won. Those last three frames encapsulated the final and Ronnie perfectly. Boom, 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 10-7. Beauty finish and another record for the Rocket 30 years later. Not enough can be said about Ronnie, the GOAT. As much as I sometimes feel I'm over him, at the same time, I cannot appreciate him. I cannot not appreciate him. His greatness, his genius. Like you said, he is by far the biggest asset Snooker has, and I hope he sticks around for a few more years. But I would not be surprised if we see less and less of him on the main tour of the next few seasons. Sounds like he wants to focus on the big events mostly and his presence in China. Only time will tell. Before I sign off, I just wanted to comment on the rumour that the UK Championship might move away from York. Personally, I feel that would be a real shame based on my experience. Great tournament, great venue, great city. York has so much to offer in between sessions. History, nice walks, snooker clubs, pubs galore, etc. And with record ticket sales and a TV audience, why move? I hope it's just a rumour that they stay in York. Really, I hope to be back sometime in a not-too-distant future, maybe already next year. Anyway, sorry again for the crazy long email. was reliving the week as I wrote it all down, and what an experience it was. Truly amazing. I will carry that with me for the rest of my life for sure. Lastly, I'm really looking forward to the Christmas special with Nick and Phil. I'm sure it'll be a cracker. I've been listening to their podcast lately too, and between the three of you, there's so much knowledge about snooker. Looking forward to hearing how you guys recap the first half of the season. Lars Johansson there. Thank you, Lars. And that really is what snooker is all about, isn't it? It's in, It's... Embracing the experience, getting emotionally involved in the matches. And this sport is as much about people like Lars and the other fans that write into this podcast as it is about the players. 
And we saw that during COVID, didn't we? We saw some great snooker, but my word, we missed the atmosphere and we missed the engagement with the audience. Those days, thankfully, are behind us. So thank you, uh, Lars, for that. And uh, hopefully, Lars, will be back over next year. Or, or maybe, I know, I spoke to him, he, he said, he said, the Crucible is obviously, obviously is, is, you know, is the next one, surely. And, and he said, it's almost too big a deal to go there. And that's that's the, the reputation now of the Crucible. It's almost too big for people to even contemplate the sort of the, the emotional experience of going there. But it's great that so many people are are engaged emotionally with this sport because it does grab you and it kind of doesn't let, let go of you. And hopefully that will continue next year. Um, look out for the Christmas special later in the week. Thank you for all the correspondence this year. It's been, uh, it's been great, hasn't it? And we'll do it all again next year. But for now, a Merry Christmas. And as we always say, thanks for listening and goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.